0: I'm Gabby Logan and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. This time, I'm joined by Lord Sebastian Coe, the double Olympic champion who went on to be an MP, chair of the organising committee for the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games and now the president of World Athletics. In our interview, he tells me about the money issues he faced early on in his career when athletics was transitioning from an amateur sport to a professional one, why he was determined to become a politician from a very early age, and why he loves to roll up his sleeves and get fully involved, whatever the project he's working on. Lord Sebastian Coe, it is lovely to see you and to be able to chat to you. Can I call you Seb for the rest of the interview, or is that too informal? No, no, you absolutely can. Please. Good. Um, let's go back, as this is the II Family Money Show, to when you were yep. a young boy, a young lad growing up. How aware were you of your family's financial position?
1: That would have been before decimalisation then, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure that you ever, I really ever thought about it. I mean, I had a half sister, two sisters and a brother. And we never felt we were going short of anything. But you know with effectively four or five children there wasn't a lot to, you know it was it was spread a little thin Our uh, holidays were pretty much domestic affairs actually you'd be pleased to know they were normally north wales because i was <laughs> brought up in the north of england so that was probably the the, the quickest way sort of harleck and barmouth and places like that um i never got on an airplane until i was 18 and that was because i went to the european um, junior athletics championships. So no, it was it was a sort of fairly standard Sheffield
0: upbringing really. And you didn't have chats about financial matters or pensions or who was how <laughs> a mortgage worked, all those kind, you know, kind of I guess uh financial literacy, you know, did that come no, up in conversation? No.
1: actually it, it's one of the things that I've always thought if you think about it are, are, are probably the the, the, are the sorts of staple things that should be in some way included in in a, in in mm. the normal warp and weft of a classroom you know we all rather assume that there'd be a roof over your head and probably didn't realize that it was a big chunk of of wages and salaries every week or every month that went out to make sure that happened and you know if you were lucky you might be in a family where there was a company car but the upkeep of cars was was pretty expensive as well. So no, it was. I don't. You know. I think you probably is that blissful ignorance that mm. kids have, where they just assume it, It's fine that you know it all goes on until, sadly, sometimes it doesn't, and there there is that's a huge wrench. I saw that in families where, you know, at, at school where suddenly you know, and it you know a father would die, and you'd suddenly see a massive shift in uh, in just the the general not only in demeanour, but the welfare of the family.
0: Did your mum and dad have quite traditional roles then in terms of who was the breadwinner?
1: No, not really. Well, my dad was uh, an engineer um, and was born in East London, moved slowly north because that's where engineers tended to go via the US. My mother was an actress and she's of Indian heritage. So my grandfather was Indian. My grandmother and my grandfather met because my grandmother was a was a dancer she met my grandfather who was a lawyer an Indian lawyer visiting London and then quite interestingly in the 20s she went off to India had uh, two daughters my mother being one of them and so my mother was born in the in a hotel in Delhi and then came back uh, to the UK really around the start of the war their marriage uh, collapsed and then she was evacuated to Northampton and she went to RADA. So she was, my dad was a sort of earthy East London engineer. And my mother was from really slightly the other side of the, uh, the tracks really and was sort of more Hammersmith and Kensington.
0: <laughs> and, and so did she work when you were a child? It's a mystery
1: that we, that it, it is still remains a huge mystery in our family as to actually how they ever met. Um, and it's a, the 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 first date didn't go particularly well because my dad was a manic motorcycle enthusiast and thought it was a really good icebreaker to stick her on the back of an aerial square four and take her down the Portsmouth Road at about 105 miles an hour. Apparently, she didn't speak to him for three months <laughs> after that.
0: something clicked though something worked and something something when you were growing up and obviously showing great talent uh, as a a young athlete um you obviously you went to university as well but how much in your mind was the possibility that being an athlete could become a a full-time profession or job because it was an amateur sport wasn't it so was it ever in your mind Uh, gabby it didn't it didn't cross my mind
1: you know, I joined a club in Sheffield at the age of 11, the Hallamshire Harriers. Um, you know, everybody that worked in the club. I mean, it's a, Sheffield was a mining and steel city. And even some of the athletes that you sort of looked up to and that made it into the British team. And there was a very well-known local runner, a guy called Trevor Wright, who was, you know, got European and Commonwealth medals uh, at the marathon, but was, was still a, a, a fitter. Uh, working in one of the local factories. So and uh, nobody ever thought about it even in uh, you know, I slithered my way to a, a degree uh, and while I was doing that I uh, Got accepted onto the trading floor at a bank in you know for foreign exchange It's the sort of thing that you know, you be applied for I didn't remotely think about athletics and that was 1979 in fact just before just after I got the uh, got accepted I broke the world records, and suddenly the world completely changed. But even then, I didn't sort of think about that as being a, you know, a, a sort of career destiny. It was something that, it was something that gave me profile, but it was not something that immediately, you know, paid off. And if you look, I mean, people you know, Gabby, like you know, Brendan Foster, mm-hmm. throughout the bulk of his career, was he was a chemistry teacher. Yeah, you know, Alan yeah. Pasco was out there. You know, building a business. There were plenty of examples of athletes who were combining. I can't think of anybody I was in the British team with in the late 70s that wasn't combining their career with a pretty um, tough
0: outside job. And was that an even playing field globally? Because you is that the three world records in 41 days at, at that point? Yeah. So in terms of the rest of the world, was everybody in the same situation? Other countries? I mean, obviously you'd have the state-sponsored athletes in the east, wouldn't you?
1: It's a, it's a really perceptive question and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try and sort of synthesise it because you've really tapped into some interesting history for our sport. Um, it wasn't the same. Uh, what was interesting was that yes, there was appearance money and you know we're, we're quite open about it, uh, and it wasn't life-changing. But if you had a certain cachet at a certain level of the sport, uh, and even in the forties and fifties, there was appearance money. You know, particularly on the Scandinavian circuit I- I- in track and field. But it was it was minimal and it was very limited. Uh, and what was interesting is that if you look back at the way cricket and football, and to a certain extent uh, more of late rugby dealt with that transition between sort of the amateur, you know, through to the professional, it was quite explosive. Cricket had, you know, the Packer tour and the complete disruption. I seem to remember uh, as a tennis fan that Wimbledon, I think for a couple of years, uh, had, uh, had some of the professional players that, uh, refused to play there. Uh, rugby, you know better than I do, is still going through some of those those growing pains.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We adopted quite an interesting sort of hybrid model where you had a, a trust fund. So, for instance, when I broke the world records, I then signed a modest first contract with a shoe company. Uh, and at that point, the funding went into the uh, trust fund. It was managed by what was then the British Amateur Athletic Board, I was able to draw down from it, you know, what they called subvention payments that allowed me to train overseas for a few weeks of the year or get medical. I couldn't go out and buy a Lamborghini or or a 20 up, 20 down, but what what it did do and, it, the, and the, the historical perspective in this is important. There was a real fear in athletics, particularly my predecessor, but to uh, Primo Nebbiolo that because there was no such thing in the Eastern Bloc as professional, the, the, the word did not exist. Mm-hmm. So although they, most of their athletes were actually more professional than we were <laughs> in that they were in state-supported systems, some of it a bit questionable as we now know, mm-hmm. uh, and many were in the army, many were in police forces, they never saw a parade ground or, or you know, a pavement. Mm-hmm. And so the the reason we adopted the trust fund was to make sure that the sport didn't fracture down the middle and you just had sort of Western sport and Eastern block sport. And it was quite smart. And in an odd way, I, I don't think it was it certainly wasn't by commission. It was probably more by a mission the, mm-hmm. the the system just sort of broke down, but it didn't break down in a in a livid or a violent way, If it's in simple terms, if you were good enough, you got paid. And if you weren't, you didn't. And it still meant that I could run in a, a major championship against athletes, for instance, at the three A's championships or a national championship that were not possibly at that stage of their careers at my standard, but it did keep the sport together. Whereas cricket and, and particularly tennis, and you know, it wasn't that many more. It wasn't that many years earlier than that. You know, you had the ten pound wages cap in football as well, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and they were quite violent moments when things changed. But athletics was actually genuinely did it in a in a much more controlled and constrained way. And the reason behind it was as much to make sure that the sport didn't fracture down the middle, because obviously, the Eastern Bloc. Mm. in our sport was so much more important than it was in cricket or tennis or even football. I was going to football. say, it's
0: interesting how geopolitics has kind of worked alongside this or is entwined with all of this in the development of the modern day athletics landscape, isn't it? In terms of, you yeah, know, completely. without without that, it may have worked in a different way if, if if the Eastern Bloc countries hadn't been as into athletics, you know, in the way that they aren't into yeah. into, into cricket.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, because it may may have meant what would our... It, I often sit and think, what would our sport have looked like if we hadn't had some of those constraints? Maybe it would look very different if we'd had the sort of the, the Big Bang and, mm-hmm. you know, everything w- had been, you know, thrown up out of the volcano. What what would it look like? It might have looked very different from what it is today because, you know, the the modern sport is still... No, it's difficult for people to understand, but modern athletics, you know it, you you follow it. It's still quite a set of compromises. Mm
0: -hmm, And mm -hmm.
1: some of it is still, you know, is suffused in that sort of slightly Victorian ethos still.
0: Certainly, course,
1: certainly some of the events.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one of the other big bangs that happened in this country was the funding provided by the National Lottery. If you're looking at kind of yeah. markers of where lifestyles could change and where people had the opportunity then to, to really dedicate themselves to their sports. And yeah. um, and that, you know, is different. Every country has a different model, doesn't it, about how much state funding there is or how much people get kind of sponsorship that is a, a, enables them to do that. Is it better for it? Do you think, as, a, as somebody who experienced a very different system, do you look at the modern landscape for athletes and, and think you would have enjoyed the current status quo? We had the
1: National Lottery in place in about 1994. 96 was probably the first time, but our games in Atlanta were pretty disastrous. Mm, mm. And it was only really in about 2000 in Sydney that you could see the impact. So yeah, I, I do welcome the national lottery. I think prime ministers always thrash around for legacy at the end of their mm. careers. And I always, I remember saying to, to John Major at the Olympic Games in London in 2012, look, I genuinely think your legacy Mm-hmm. Is probably one of the profoundest legacies any post-war prime minister can lay claim to, because the national lottery really did fundamentally change the landscape in in uh, sport and, and culture and mm-hmm. and and certainly in um, the in you know the third sector. So it, it's something he I don't think he actually quite appreciates still the profound impact. We would never have had an Olympic Games without national lottery funding.
0: Going back a little bit, and we'll get to London as well, but going back a little bit, when you were experiencing, uh, you know, you're in the peak of your powers and you're winning back-to-back Olympic golds and you're, you know, the absolute pinnacle of your career those years there. Now you're, you are sponsored and you're able to take appearance fees and things are changing and the sport um, looks from the outside like it was, well, it was millions of people were watching kind of Friday Night Athletics, weren't they? And it was really yeah. in, its, in its kind of prime in that sense. Financially at this point, you know, you, you're pretty much focused on athletics, aren't you? This is this is your main source of income. So, how how much at that point did you think that this was? You know, because it's like young footballers, young players, young you know whoever they are, that are earning money. How much were you thinking about the future, putting stuff away, trying to kind of protect for a rainy day, and, and how much were you living in the moment with all of that?
1: I, I think inevitably it was probably a mixture of everything. <laughs> I caused quite a stir uh, because I had a very Interesting conversation with my father, who would have been very quite capable, you know, he managed businesses. He would have been quite capable of managing that element of my career. But he was mm. really clear that as my coach, he did not want that responsibility. He could, he could saw it being an absolute conflict straight away. That was very savvy of him. I do not want to be, you know, I'm laying the schedules. I'm building mm. a team around you. I will tell you roughly how I think you need to get from A to B. But I can't be sitting there worrying that the journey from A to B is going to get diverted because you need to do three appearances for, <laughs> you know, brand A, B, or C. I don't, he said, "I do not want that problem." So I actually was the first athlete to sign up with IMG, the McCormack organisation, and that caused a massive stir in the British media because what, what, what they "What was said, the problem? You know,
0: what did the media? What did the media have as, as its biggest gripe?" Well, first of all,
1: they didn't, they'd sort of assumed that the McCormack organization was only about rugby and tennis and, and golf, uh, not rugby, but certainly American tennis and, yeah. uh, to golf and all the American yeah, sports. Yeah. And, you know, there was a nervousness, there was a nervousness that, you know, this was going to, you know, pull, you know, the brick out of the dam. In fact, all it really did is it allowed me to focus entirely on the athletic side of it, And yeah, the the financial advisors there, you know, started to say, well, you you do need to think about a pension fund. And yes, you do need to pay tax as well. So, you know, I I know that I've got friends that were in the sport that didn't get that kind of advice and, Mm. you know, were, you know, still, you know, getting the, the knock on the door from whatever passed for Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue at the time. And, and yeah, yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. And there was this odd period where, you know, athletics meetings, particularly up in Scotland, used to get raided by the police if they thought that there was, you know, appearance money was being paid. So the best advice I ever had from my father was, look, we'll deal with the amateur code as and when we need to deal with it. But... It's easier to deal with the British Athletics Federation than it will be Her Majesty's <laughs> Customs and Revenue. So we're paying tax. And so he actually created a small business and we found a, a, a local accountant who helped. He he became one of the directors and we did pay tax. I always remember on the, I think it was 1981 in London. I think it was Lord Exeter's um, memorial service. And I got invited by... Uh, in London, I got invited by Ant- Antonio Samaranch, the IOC president, who was grappling with the issues of what was how were athletes going to start moving into the new era. And my predecessor, again, but one um, Primo nebbiola was also in the room, and I was only in my twenties, and I just joined the Athletes Commission. And I remember Samaranch at this private lunch throwing to me in front of the federation president, saying, "What do you think?" you know, what do you think the athletes think? And I said, well, in fairness, President, I think the athletes would prefer not to be in this twilight zone. And yeah, that probably does mean paying tax. Well, you'd have thought I'd announced the slaughtering of the firstborn in every family. <laughs> Primo, you know, who had that sort of Roman countenance, he, was, he sort of went off like Vesuvius and looked at me completely like an imbecile He said, why would you want to pay tax? <laughs> And, you know, that was the basis at that moment. And that was what, you know, Samaranch was smart enough to realise that in order to make the changes he wanted to in Olympic sport, he needed to take the athletes with him. Mm. But there were still some quite, you know, reactionary forces out there.
0: Your transition then into the world of work and politics, let's go to politics first, you you were a Tory MP and you also worked with William Hague to try and form yeah. a, a government. Yeah. In those years, when you've won gold medals and you've been a world record holder and achieved the absolute Mm. pinnacle in in your sport, you know, a lot of people find that transition hard. How does real life feel, you know, to a lot of people? It doesn't feel great. For you, was politics then an arena that you felt you would get that high octane kind of response and feel like you were able to to achieve something that could be even remotely comparable? No, not really. It's
1: a it's a slightly depressing thing to actually admit, but I knew I wanted to be in politics when I was about 13 or 14 <laughs> I was fascinated by it. I used to keep a political diary I know people are thinking well an anorak, but I did I was I was always interested in politics I didn't come from a party political family. My father was old labor a Very socialist. My mother was an old-fashioned liberal a sort of Joe Grimmons school in you know, Manchester liberalism mm-hmm. and There was political debate around the table all the time. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that they walked in the uh, anti-Vietnam marches in in London. They were both quite activist in their way. Mm -hmm. It was quite an interesting moment when I did tell them that I was throwing my hat in the ring, (laughs) uh, potentially as a Conservative uh, Member of Parliament. And so for me, it wasn't really, I never saw it as a replacement. It's probably what I might have done earlier, had my athletics career not gone on into, you know, into my 30s. And I wasn't sure whether, you know, I knew I wanted to be involved in politics in one way or the other. I wasn't actually sure. For a time, I thought about, you know, becoming a political writer or maybe broadcasting. I I thought about the civil service for a time as well so it was really when i it, i was de- deputy chair of the uk sports council and i found that a fascinating process because you know you just I, understanding the way government worked mm-hmm. uh, admittedly in a sort of narrower sphere of sport and knowing the buttons to press and the buttons to leave well alone and and I suddenly thought, well, actually I, I really quite enjoy this. I'd like to do this at a constituency level. And then I ended up in, in Cornwall, which was a a fascinating part of the world to be in. I never thought I'd get elected there because they sort of kept telling me they never voted for anybody from outside the county and they didn't <laughs> like outsiders. And I'd reminded them I was brought up in a county that didn't much like each other up in Yorkshire. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't too complicated. And then, of course, we lost, you know, I lost the, uh, we, we got swept away by um, Tony in um, 97. And then I worked on William Hayes' campaign team uh, to help him get elected. And then he made me his chief of staff for four years. So it was a fascinating period in politics to, mm. to be in for me. And I learned a lot during that period. But it, the time, my political timing was slightly, slightly off
0: <laughs> um did you though find any kind of a mental kind of or a challenge in terms of that transition from being so Exalted and globally famous, and you know, high achieving into into a world which can be brutal and uh, you know doesn't necessarily res- respect uh, those medals when you're kind of in the debating chamber or you're sitting late night discussing a bill. Do, do you know,
1: it's a really good question, and, and actually, the honest answer to that is I actually felt slight relief that I wasn't high profile again. Uh, it, you know, it was an interesting process for me. And I always say this to athletes that leave the sport: you know, do not assume that when you leave your sport, even as a world record holder or, as a, or a gold medalist, that you're going to walk into your next career at that level. You do actually have to regroup and go back. So I went went into the House of Commons as a sort of backbench fodder, and in a way, I think because I went in with a, a reputation for having done something outside it was probably even tougher Mm. because, you you know, there was that sort of, oh, well, I deliberately chose not to go for a safe seat because I knew that I would only get an accusation or I got parachuted Mm. into Mm -hmm. Surbiton or Esher or somewhere like that. So I chose a marginal in Cornwall, which was a great five years. It wasn't sort of career enhancing in the end, but I really enjoyed it down there. But the, the, the thing for me, I think the thing I found most frustrating is that and you know this from having played sport at a very serious level everything is objective you know there it's there's there's very little subjectivity about it in my sport it's a stopwatch it's the result sheet mm-hmm. and i think the thing i found difficult in politics and i still do it's just the arbitrary nature mm. of preferment you know how do people come through i mean it's Actually, statistically, it's tougher to become the CEO of a FTSE 100 than it is to become the prime minister. And clearly, given that we've had four in the last year or two, it's not the most exclusive club at the end of the year, is it?
0: Um, so this, you obviously enjoy, or it would appear you enjoy the process and the governance and the and the you know that these are jobs that are um, admin and being involved in in that process is really important. If you, you like sit, you know sitting on committees and debating and you know. All, well, I'm, all the... I, I
1: wouldn't go so far as to say I really enjoy sitting on committees, but it's sort of it's it's what you you have to do. I, I, I guess what I like about what I do is that, and, and it's whatever you make of it, I actually enjoy being in the boiler room in an organisation. I enjoyed that, the nature of the London Olympic bid mm. by being very hands-on and then being hands-on in the organising committee. If I'm going to do something, I, d- I don't want to just be the, a name at the top of a, of a, of a headed... Mm. Uh, you want to uh, roll your sleeves notebook. up and get involved. Yeah, I- I- exactly. And I think, Funnily enough, going back to the political grounding, that gave me a real, that was really, really helpful in mm-hmm. maintaining what I like to think was quite unusually for an Olympic Games anywhere in the world. Uh, it became very bipartisan. The, the Games never became a political football, even around election times. I think one of my better achievements was to get all three political parties in 2005, to agree to the same two paragraphs in the manifesto, word for word, because I knew that whoever triumphed, whether it was a coalition or whether it was mm. a, a clear win, I wanted them all to have something in a manifesto that I could turn to and say, by the way, guys, that's what you sold yourselves at the last election on. Mm. And, you know, we went through, we had different prime ministers, different mayors of London, a handful of sports ministers and secretaries of state, but. The one superstar in all that was really a good example of how politics at its best can work, and that's Tessa Jowell. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because
1: she was the Secretary of State uh, when we won, but, you know, she lost her uh, role in 2010, but remained uh, in the process as a really responsible opposition spokesman Mm -hmm. And, and people like Jeremy Hunt and Hugh Robertson, who had come through as opposition
0: spokespeople, also became well-briefed ministers. London was such a, an incredible success on so many levels. Um, that you know, logistically, the the actual you know kind of delivery of the event in terms of how it went, but also mm. what it did to this nation in terms of pulling people together and people who previously thought they didn't enjoy sport. You know, people who previously thought that they weren't into Olympic sport. What was your when when you'd had time to reflect? What was the thing you were most thrilled about? Well
1: i don't want to make it sound too romantic but you know i was the sport was fantastic and and you picked up on a really important point here you know it was the public's engagement with the games and that wasn't unalloyed joy to start with Mm. you know we were going to market with a concept that you know about grand projet in in the uk at the time remember this was around 2002 2003 we got you know the dome we got the overrun on the bbc the scottish parliament wembley stadium couldn't figure out whether it was football <laughs> rugby or even track But field we ha- we actually people forget we had the 2005 world we were given the 2005 world athletics championships we had to hand it back because wembley wasn't ready and you know they suddenly decided they wouldn't have a track so we all went off to helsinki so it wasn't the easiest sell at the time But what I most liked about the games was I thought it showed the UK for what it really is, which is a country that was actually at that stage, I think things have changed, was at ease with itself. It was comfortable with its multiculturalism. Uh, It was open, it was expansive, it was proud and protective of its history and its heritage, but it was in a modern setting. Mm. And I suppose the sa- if that was the high point, I suppose the slight sadness of looking back 10 years and realizing actually we could be doing so much better than we currently are in those spaces.
0: You obviously had uh, enormous success and great fame, kind of, you know, another level of fame kind of comes from delivering something like that. At the time, did you then think, you know, you, you could deliver something else? Obviously, you could go and deliver another big event globally, or was athletics and, you know, running the IWF was that always something in the back of your mind that you thought you would like to do?
1: Well, this is an interesting day for you to ask me that question because I wanted to throw my hat into the ring um, for the World Athletics job, as the IAAF job. And my predecessor, we thought was gonna step down in 2011, he chose not to and stepped down in, in, in 2015. And I was in the sort of latter stages of making my, my mind up uh, about that and thinking, well, that's probably going to be another decade or so of my life if I'm successful. There was no guarantee. I was, you know, competing against Sergey Bubka, who is very well known in the sport. Um, and in the middle of all that, out of left field, I effectively got offered the chairmanship of the BBC. And yes, you might you might uh, open your eyes slightly wider at that moment. And I did think quite seriously about it because I am a. Passionate believer in the BBC. I'm a passionate believer in public broadcasting Uh, And it wasn't at that stage without its challenges and I thought this would be you know from a political background This would be a really interesting Mm. You know period it was the chairmanship of the trust Um, (laughs) I sat down with William Hague who literally said to me word-for-word if you take that job, I will lie down in the middle of the road to stop you doing that outside Broadcasting House. And he said, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you say. And I sort of said, no, well, it's an interesting... He said, it's an absolute poison chalice. He said, don't go anywhere near it.
0: I should just say, for because people will listen to this any time <laughs> that we're having this conversation about two hours, three hours after the Director General uh, Tim Davey, has released a statement uh, after the weekend of Gary Lineker missing match of the day, and uh, yeah, and all the politics that that threw into the air over the last three days. So that's that's the irony of that, uh, and the questioning about the chairmanship of the BBC yeah. in the same rest, which, so, which is also yeah. yeah been
1: uh, front and centre. so I can safely put on record that you had no idea I was going to actually no. <laughs> answer that question in that way. And so I I then said, and he looked at me and said, look, athletics needs you more than the BBC. You know, in the nicest possible way, the BBC will find somebody, but I'm not sure athletics can. And this is what you, have for as long as I've known you, this is what you wanted to do. So, so, so was,
0: do- was William somebody that you would regularly yes. bounce off ideas? Uh,
1: and I, And I still do. Mm. I still do, and particularly, where, you know, now, you know, given his his um, understanding of foreign policy, you know, some mm. of our issues around, you know, that we have to confront mm. as a sport mm-hmm. in the global setting is mm-hmm. is it's you know you couldn't have a better you couldn't have better intelligence and and tutorials. So yeah, we we speak a lot. And so what I laugh with him is I said, so, okay, well, I'll go to the IAAF for the quiet life. (laughs) Because I've been there two weeks and we had a police raid on the building. So the next two years were, were, you know, were pretty horrible.
0: Speaking of money, Seb, um, how um, across all these incredible jobs, and we could talk and talk and talk and keep going about all the the interesting things you've done. How much have you uh, put things away, had pensions, looked after, you know, kind of... uh, yourself for a rainy day, should that come? Has that always, back to your dad's very, very savvy advice about taking an agent, it seems that you were...
1: Yeah, to
0: a certain extent, but I, I don't,
1: I, I'm not sort of squirrelling stuff away all the time on the basis that, you know, I'm, you know, going to be comfortable in my old age. I do actually think it's quite important to live for the day. I was reading a really interesting um, um book of essays by Alistair Cook, probably, uh, personally, I think one of the greatest essayists of the 20th century. And the foreword to this, it was reporting America. It was his letters, his letters from America from 1946 to 2004, literally um, last letter he wrote just before he died. And his daughter wrote a lovely piece of foreword to it. And she actually said that I think my father found it harder to have money than not to have money. And I think a lot of people are in, you know, sometimes get torn between that. You know, I I know an awful lot of people who have got an awful lot of money who don't obviously appear to be that happy. Uh, And there are people who I know are, you know, struggling to make ends meet, who sort of have, a, a, in a way, a slightly more balanced life. You know, obviously it's nice to be somewhere in the middle of all that.
0: Thanks for listening to the ii Family Money Show. If you've got time, please give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review or rating. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. See you next time.